Welcome back to another episode of Being an Artist is Fucking Killing Me. I'm Corinne. I'm Rainy. Happy Tuesday. Merry Tuesday. Welcome back. How is everybody's stay-at-home orders going? (laughs) Is it great? Is it awful? Is it better than the second? I actually was thinking about this. I'm finding it. I feel like because I was in the first stay-at-home orders, I was like really enthralled in like my thesis and like Mm -hmm. working on that. I feel like I didn't get a lot of like the clean a drawer, be great. Like I didn't get a lot of that situation to right. do. Like a little, sorry, not situation. I didn't get like a lot of time to do all those things that everybody else, I felt like everybody else was doing. So right. this stay at home order, I feel like I am able to like clean out drawers and like, <laughs> you know, be creative and like enjoy my copy. And I'm, I'm really trying. When I went back to work in the summer after being in the original lockdown, mm-hmm. somebody at work I was speaking to them and everyone was like, oh, that sucked. Right. And someone, (laughs) this girl, Shauna at work was like, yeah, it was like weird, but like, also we just had time to just chill and like not do anything. When in our lives are we ever going to be able to get to do that again? And it was such a positive outlook and Mm -hmm. thought. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, I didn't take advantage of the original lockdown. Like I should have actually like chilled been happy about like, I have this time to like, do everything like be on like a permanent vacation for a little bit right so I didn't I felt a little bit disappointed in myself when she had said that and I hadn't taken that time so I'm trying to take this time to really just be like live in the moment of this stay-at-home order mm-hmm. and really like, enjoy having the time to have my morning coffee in the morning yes. you know enjoy having like 30 minutes in bed in the morning to like cuddle with Nils enjoy like cooking dinner yeah. and like really finding time there like it's like enjoyable and being like positive about everything and just thinking like, this is the last time this is going to happen, even though we don't know that, but like trying to like think like when else in my life am I going to have all this time to, to do all these things? Totally. Yeah. I have entered full housewife stage. So (laughs) I lay in bed until like 10 and then maybe I have a coffee and maybe I work out or just lay on my yoga mat. Right. (laughs) The laying on your yoga mat on your phone in your workout clothes is such a vibe the epitome of 2020 yes yeah and maybe I have a shower and I do a full skincare routine and then maybe I eat something and then maybe I clean something and then maybe I just wait around the house yeah yeah and you know I think that it's important for us to just like take this time to enjoy it like I'm trying to think about myself like in like 10 years 15 years when I like have like kids and like I'm like locking myself in my fucking bathroom and like drinking wine and just like don't have any time for anything and the podcast is like doing amazing and we're like recording and we're doing like a bunch of stuff that we want to do and I don't have time to like enjoy my coffee in the morning right so I'm trying to like really like take this time to be like manifest these things (laughs) that we that we all that I want and then also like be like this is the last time you're ever going to have time to enjoy (laughs) a full month to enjoy these things you know right yeah I mean that's such a great way to think about it and you know hindsight is 2020 and it's yeah it's a good thing to put that silver lining spin on it and honestly I was talking to someone this weekend about how we felt because I feel very similar to the way that we spent like the beginning of the summer Mm -hmm. you know because we had small bubbles and so I was like only hanging out with you and Dan Mm -hmm. and it was just like Every time we hung out, it was like girls time. Mm-hmm. We were doing whatever we wanted. And it was just like, just our friends. Right. Mm-hmm. And it felt like summer break. Like we were in school and didn't have jobs. And yeah, it was like, we were just doing things that we would normally do in the summer, but we weren't like wasting our time with like 
not wasting our time, but we were only doing whatever we wanted to do with the people that we wanted to do with because we had made yeah. the choice of our bubbles, right? Yeah. Exactly. So like every time we hung out, it was like amazing. Yeah. And like, totally. when are we going to have a summer like that again? You know? Yeah. And who we had so much fun. Like, even though we were like working, all of us, like we were working yeah. like less because of there wasn't as many people going out. So like, right. Everything wasn't as busy. So we were going from working during the summer, like six days a week. Yeah. 10 hours a day, plus everything else, plus mm-hmm. this and this to like working three days a week for like eight hours. And then spending those like other, you know, four days mm-hmm. at the frickin Island or like, yeah biking around like it was just it was it was really enlightening to see like I felt like very European like you know how they say <laughs> in Spain that at like two o'clock everybody in Spain is just like done work <laughs> I felt it was very like we were able to finally like take time and enjoy ourselves and there was less of like a pressure from society and like mm-hmm. capitalism to like hustle you know? totally so yeah. it, I am trying to take this time to like really and again like this could completely change and next week I could be like fuck Nice. <laughs> totally but this is what how I'm feeling today right it. by the yeah. time this episode comes out in four days you could be screaming totally <laughs> okay you guys we are gonna plug our patreon again mm-hmm. we have kind of done a little like shifty shift because our original plan when adding more content to our patreon for our patrons was to have fun cool videos well mm-hmm. we can't really sit together and film right now mm-hmm. so and we had such a good time and got a really good response from our really long intro right after the holidays when we did a fast five. Yes. In the Cyrus Marcus Ware episode, which by the way, if you haven't listened to it and you're feeling a little bit down today, if you want to feel hopeful, go listen to that episode. Yeah, totally. He is an amazing person. Yes. So the fast five intro that we did, we're going to do once a month for our Patreons only. So it's going to be a 30 to 45 minute episode. I put that in quotes that we release for our patrons and you will be able to get that if you sign up at yeah. any dollar amount. Exactly. $1 a month. You could literally spend $12 and that will help us mm-hmm. and you'll get all this content yeah. and you'll be like the first to get some content. Mm-hmm. And it's just really nice to support artists. Like even this like sweatsuit I'm wearing today, guys, I could have easily gone to Aritzia and bought in like the green tea matcha sweatsuit that was like $200 that I wanted. But I went to a local person and bought the sweatshirt, the sweatsuit that was actually cheaper than the Aritzia one. And it so, looks cute. Thank you. It's really cute. So go, mm. like, it's really important to support local right now. Everyone's really struggling. And if you want this community to continue in the future, then we mm-hmm. support it now. And it's important to remember that. Totally. And when you support a local artist, there's just like so much more thought and care to you as a customer. Um, I actually bought some stuff from Oxana Berta for my mom for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Um, cause her, um, like pottery collection is very like right up my mom's alley mm-hmm. and Oksana sent, not only was I able to like pick it up from her during like the Christmas thing and like say hi. And that was so nice. We were able to communicate and like see each other at a distance outside. <laughs> um, she like sent a thank you card, you know, and it's like handwritten thank you card with a postcard. And like, I hope your mom enjoyed it. And was like, so lovely. That would never happen if I ordered something or like pick something up, you know, from Amazon or H and M or like a bigger retailer. Yeah. You know, so there's just like so much thought. Yeah. And care. So please support local. Please go mm-hmm. check out our Patreon. Please mm-hmm. help us in any way that you can. We appreciate you all so much. Yes. Let's get into this week. Yes. So this week we have like a bit of an interesting interview. Yes. We interviewed Emily Trice and 
Michael Zatharis Cook. I'm sorry if I said that wrong, yes. Michael. <laughs> and Michael um, runs and operates the podcast blog, Blue Ribbon. Mm -hmm. And if you haven't, go check it out. It's amazing. He is such a smart individual. He's so well-spoken. And in his podcast, um, right before the holidays, he actually released a three-part series discussing EDI, and um, which subject is about the Nicholas Rose um, situation that happened at the National Ballet this past summer. Yes. In that three-part series, he also discusses a article that was written by Emily Trace mm -hmm. that was that has been really challenging for them to get published. And this is what this podcast episode is about. It's about Michael and Emily's attempt to get this article published and how it's been unsuccessful for mm -hmm. what reason we have no idea. So if you go listen to this three-part series, you get to listen to Michael discuss EDI, listen to the um, article that Emily has written, listen to an interview of Michael and Nicholas. Yes. And you get to listen to Michael, you know, discussing it. Right. EDI stands for equality, diversity, and inclusion. Yes. Yes. Equity, diversity. Yeah. Equity. Yeah. And um, I just want to let you all know that like a preface to this episode, even though we will be discussing um, Nicholas Rose as he's like, it, this is his trauma that happened mm -hmm. at National Ballet. We found it like extremely imperative that we ask Michael that we had permission from Nicholas to discuss about this because Nicholas isn't um, one of the people that we are interviewing, but we found it really important that we had his permission. Mm -hmm. um, but I think you'll see in the episode, it, it is about Nicholas and he's obviously such a large part of it, but we right. really are discussing um, Michael and Emily's attempt to get this article published and what um, barriers they ran into. Yes, Nicholas was obviously the catalyst for a lot of the discussion around the practices of the National Ballet this summer. Yeah. And I also think like, it's important, listen, I like ask a question in there that I am like, I'm feeling a little bit of, when you listen to the article, there's a question, there's a moment that kind of happens. And I think it's important. The reason I felt like the need to ask the question is because it pertained to how Emily was discussing writing about Nicholas as a white woman writing about a black man. And I felt mm -hmm. like the question really like pertained to that experience. And it was like leading into something from how we like as journalists, podcasters, discussers, commenters, writers can like bring these problems forward in the industry. Yeah. Um, and like what happens when like we're not allowed to do that. Right. Um, and like, I think that it's, you know, like I'm still really trying to educate myself on like my own racism. And like, I think it's important for as white people to know that like we've all been racist in our yep. lives. I, I like think that it was like maybe inappropriate for me to ask that question. And I, I don't know yet. I'm still trying, I'm still trying to figure it out. I, I'm like a little bit disappointed in myself for asking. Mm. I understand why you're feeling that way. And would, if I, if I had asked it, I'd probably feel very similar. And it's like, but I think it's an important question to ask because if we, obviously there's like tact around asking certain questions and there's like intention and context in discussion. And I think like, if you would have come out with that question out of nowhere, mm. it would have been very different than because it was already asked in the art or already asked in the discussion between Michael and Nicholas, that mm -hmm. I think that there's importance in asking the kind of questions that are, might make us uncomfortable. And like, I, that might you make can us feel like uncomfortable in while well, yeah. you listen to the, if there's like uncomfortableness in the interview and yes. that's fine. Yes. And I think 
as Michael says, it's in those moments of being uncomfortable where we're going to learn and we're going to grow the most. And hopefully we're going to educate, help other people's education, right? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. if we just stick to the questions that we think we should be asking, then I don't think there's a lot of like change or growth in there. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I totally I, get it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm not trying to make this all about me. This is not about me. I just thought I would like preface the, the interview with that. Yeah. Um, this is really about like Michael, again, Michael and Emily's attempts to get this article published and right. it, these barriers that they ran into and like what it, it's just listen to it and let us know what your thoughts are. There's a lot to unpack in this interview and oh, there's yeah. a lot to unpack in Michael's podcast as well. So if, if you want right now, we're going to give you about three hours, go to Spotify, <laughs> go to Michael's podcast, the blue ribbon podcast, listen to those three episodes and then come yes. back to this if you need to. Yeah. We'll always be here. <laughs> and I will link those for everybody too. Um, yeah. yeah. It's also like interesting of this discussion. I, did you read Rodney DeVerlis's latest? Um, I haven't had a chance to read it yet. No. Okay. Well, the title is that like, why, oh, why black artists should spend 2021 forging our own paths, not trying to fix broken institutions. Yes. So Rodney wrote this amazing article and I think it actually really speaks to the conversation that we started having, right? Like how are we going to change institutions such as the national ballet that are so large and ingrained in their, like their audience base, it's probably not realistic. So yeah, make our own stuff. You'll see that in this interview, like that there are institutions who are not, they're saying they're, they're trying, but mm -hmm. they're not trying. Yes. And I think that that's exactly what this like whole interview and that article is all about. It's just like this, like kind of virtue signaling that Nicholas actually was posting about today or posting about the other day. Yeah. It's dense. Listen carefully, have some critical thoughts about it. We would also like love some feedback on it. Mm -hmm. If you have some thoughts our email is always open. Here is the podcast. And uh, again, if you haven't yet, go listen to Michael's podcast, the Blue Ribbon Podcast. Here we go. I am uh, Michael Zarathus Cook. I am a writer, editor based in Toronto, working in the performing arts community. I am also a student at uh, the University of Toronto in the Health uh, Sciences Department. Uh, hello, my name is Emily Trace. I'm a writer, interviewer in the performing arts, and I work with a small opera company as well. Uh, okay, so we have a little bit of a, a fun thing today because we actually have a little bit of a, I wouldn't say it's like a crossover, but we have <laughs> Michael from Blue Ribbon Podcast today, um, and Emily, which we're so excited about. Um, first off, can we just know, Michael and Emily, what is the connection between the two of you? Oh boy, here we go. <laughs> uh, the origin story. But first of yeah. all, I got to thank you, Rain, for saying Blue Ribbon properly. You, you, you wouldn't right? believe. Yeah, that's correct. You nailed it. You wouldn't believe all the many iterations of uh, pronunciation that I get. And I think that's fair because it is spelt weird. It's sort of like an antiquated way of spelling ribbon. Uh, but I'm glad you nailed it there. Emily, do you want to do you want to do the details on on our our I mean, story? I, I think I've probably said blue ribboned almost every time I've interacted with Michael for several years no. and it embarrasses me every time because yeah, anyways. Um, so Michael and I worked at uh, the FSC as ushers. I was a few years older than him. And at the time, like, I didn't really have anyone in my life who was like being nice to me, flattering me, valuing me. So when this young kid came along and he went, oh, you're a writer. I would love for you to like edit my essays. I went, 
this guy's making fun of me because no one else takes me seriously as a writer. So I went, there's no way he's being sincere. So I was very like standoffish and just gave him the brush off, like stop making fun of me. Um, and then we reconnected a few years later when I was um, crying outside <laughs> um, on Boxing Day a couple years ago because I saw this, um, I saw some police brutality and I'd never seen that in real life. And just sat down and had a cry and I heard this voice say, hey, Emily. Um, and I thought, whoever it is, I'm gonna be so grateful for whoever it is. And then I look up and go, oh, it's this kid. <laughs> um, um, but then we realized we had all of this stuff in common. We were both uh, writers, we were both, we'd both worked on writing portfolios and we both lived on the same street at different times. We kept coming across all these funny little coincidences. The universe kept trying to throw us back together to work on a project together, I think. So when Michael invited me to write something for Blue Ribbon, I, Blue Ribbon, oh my gosh, I just no, did it's it. don't worry. <laughs> uh, I was I was thrilled because I was finally in uh, a space with with self esteem for myself that I could accept um, Michael's completely pure and sincere admiration and adulation for good writing. And I was able to sort of receive that in a different space. And it's been really amazing to uh, be platformed by someone who's such an exceptional curator of music and the arts, um, who has a way of talking about music that I've never heard anyone else really come across. It's been a real privilege to be able to work with Michael on Blue Ribbon and uh, Smart Magazine in the last few years. Oh, so you guys know each other through Smart Magazine. Is that is that also where you guys write together? Yeah. Uh, yes, yes. Okay. That's the that's the short answer. And okay. you know, I gotta add, Emily, that really the pleasure is is all mine. Um, you you mentioned earlier being taken seriously as a writer. Uh, I, I'm still trying to find a a sort of uh, non horn tootin' way of, of, of giving you this compliment compliment. But you really are one of my favorite writers in the performing arts. Like across the board. Um, you know, there are many different styles that you can have as a writer in the performing arts as a critic. Uh, Emily's style is one of my favorites where, you know, the show and the entertainment doesn't stop when the curtains are closed. Part, I feel that Toronto's critic community uh, uh, could be a lot better, could be a lot more engaging, could be a lot more entertaining. A lot of the criticism is very transactional where you're writing so that people can buy tickets and see the show Mm -hmm. when that's when you know when, when, uh, as long as it's running but rarely do you get a writer like Emily uh, that understands the importance of um, context and the fact that art is supposed to inspire therefore if you're going to write about art part of your job is also to inspire and her writing um, uh, I find it very uh, um, inspiring I, I I like to liken when, when I read your work Emily I like to liken it to you know, the effect that Florence and the Machines music has on me. Yeah. So some people, it's a hit or miss when it comes to Florence. For me, it's a huge hit. <laughs> Look, I know that's a lot. I know. So I, this is what I mean by I'm trying to find a way to not to say without, <laughs> without tuning your horn. Put me out of the game. I know. Just but we'll, we'll, we'll stop flirting with each other and let Florence uh, <laughs> and Green uh, get on with their, with their questions. And well, Michael has really taught me how to take a compliment there and how go. to not feel suspicious and not feel self-conscious about a compliment because mm -hmm. he really does give the most genuine, wonderful, soaring compliments. And it's really a testament to people say, oh, women can't take a compliment these days anymore. I'm like, yes, we can. We absolutely love compliments. You're just not giving nice compliments. You're not giving, you're not giving anything. Or your compliment <laughs> is fetching. 
Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's how you do know each other. I love that. Um, And did you, so the Emily was, sorry. So the article was written by Emily. Is that correct? Not together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But um, Michael was a really important consultation on it, on just processing how do we frame this, how do we go about investigating this, um, and just a really good sounding board, I think. Um, I really, it was helpful to come to him and say, I'm having feelings about, you know, putting together something like this, because I had a long history of hyperbolically supporting the ballet, never being critical. So this was a very emotional sort of process for me to become an adult who regards to an institution as an adult through adult eyes, not child's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, so Michael is very helpful just as um, the consulting editor in this process. Couldn't have done it without him. So Emily, you wrote an article about what happened to Nicholas Rose and his experience at the National Ballet. Um, what was the first thing that I can, and this is for both of you, Michael, feel free to respond as well. Um, what's the first thing that kind of made you think that there needed to be something written about this? My first impulse when I first saw his video up until that point, I, I had never really questioned that there was anything that could possibly um, be hurtful within that company because it had been such a safe space for me. It had been very therapeutic for me. Mm-hmm. But when I watched his video, I had this feeling that reminded me of the first time that I was in an earthquake, the Toronto earthquake back in 2011, where I thought it was my body shaking, but it was the world around me shaking. And when I was watching his video, I had the same feeling of, it's not me shaking, it's it's the world shaking. What he's doing right now is mm. he's breaking a silence around something that I had, I had no idea this extended beyond, you know, an observable casting disparity. I'd never suspected that. So I reached out to him fairly quickly and said, listen, I, I never thought that I would be saying this to someone, but if you need some kind of platform to um, address your concerns, I, I can speak to, Um, an editor of mine who I think would be happy to give you a space to expand upon what you're talking about. And, and so my first impulse was also, I also recognized a little something because I had a domestic personal smaller experience of calling out abuse in my own family. So to see a young man sort of making himself vulnerable, invisible in that way, it touched a really deep place for me. And I thought no one supported me during that time. And I would have really used it. So It would be great if I could offer him and let him know, hey, one survivor of abuse to another, obviously, I've never experienced the kind of racialized abuse that he was talking about. But I I thought, I know what I needed in that time. And I needed someone to say, I believe you, I take you seriously. um, And, and I I recognize that where what you're going through is authentic in some form or another. So please feel like you can, you can talk to me if that, that would help. Uh So that was sort of my first impulse. Um, and it was still coming from a space of really feeling like the ballet is going to want to work with him openly and and candidly about this. And I think it got more complicated and muddied as, as time went on. But that was that was the first sort of takeaway. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what you've just heard is exactly why I think uh, Emily was the perfect person to write this, because you need a, per, uh, a personal connection. Uh, in fact, an emotional connection in order to be able to write and engage with uh a story like this in a genuine way that will stand the test of time. Because what I'm hoping is, hopefully this never happens, but if ever there is another minority uh, uh, dancer or administrative person in a place like the National Ballet 
that has a similar experience five, 10 years down the road, you now have a really long article. You now have uh, a podcast series to return back to as evidence so that when you feel gaslit five, 10 years down the road, you have something to, to, to return back to. And uh, Rain, just as a tiny bit of a, a, a correction, just for the sake of it, this was oh, yeah. covered. Someone did write an article about this. The Dance Current yeah. did write an article about this and Dance Magazine did write an article about this. So to sort of extend uh, your question, I think the relevance here is why did I feel Blue Ribbon needed to write something about this or at least artic- uh, Emily's yeah. article needed to get published? And that has to do with um, the effectiveness of what was written. It was not very effective. When the Dance Current wrote an article about it, it, it looked like a press release or yes. at least a really good uh-huh. bit of, of copywriting on, on the part of the dance current. It had, it lacked very little depth. Sorry. Yeah. It lacked depth. It lacked um, a sense of meeting the moment and a sense of urgency. Now on the dance magazine side of things, they did have a bit more depth. They did look at it closer and they took it a bit more seriously. Minus the fact that the person who this is concerned with was never initially contacted before that article was Mm. written. So you have two different ways in which, let's just say the powers that be, can evade responsibility and can evade genuine, very uncomfortable conversations. Because, you know, I don't want to compare trauma here, but if a female dancer had come out and say that uh, someone was... um, I felt sexually abused at the National Ballet, for example. That would be a really big deal that more than two articles would have been written about it. Uh, when a black dancer comes out and says, I, I feel as if my race was used against me in terms of the, the progress of my career at this company, that's a pretty fucking big deal. And the articles that were written about it and the way that the, not just the articles here, this is, I'm not trying to have some sort of in-depth journalistic ethics conversation. It's about the, the community atmosphere around a complaint like this. It's either we write a serious article about this that unfortunately has to put Nicholas on the spot um, in terms of backing up his experiences, which I think he's done a great job of. But it, the onus would then be on the National Ballet to say, look, we understand your pain. We sympathize with it, but this is why we think you have your facts wrong. This is how we make decisions here that is is not congruent with the accusations that you're levying against us. In the last 10 seconds, I've done more of a job in addressing Nicholas's uh, uh, grievances publicly than the National Ballet has done. So it's this fear of not being taken seriously, and it's mm-hmm. this fear of the community flippancy that can accumulate if it doesn't get uh, addressed. So it might seem a bit insignificant. What's this brouhaha about a dancer at the National Ballet? It already sounds like a huge highbrow thing, but notice if we have a community that is flippant about a particular minority group and their experiences and the validity, validity of these experiences, the bad actors in our community, some of which are in the police force, the bad apples, so on and so forth, they now have a license to carry out their bad actions. They have the permission of the community via silence to Mm -hmm. carry out violence or any other form of Mm -hmm. neglect uh, uh, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. Uh, 
it's interesting that you you bring up that dance current article right away because actually I was going to ask you and I was wondering if you either of you noticed that the dance current I think the day or two days after um, your series of podcasts came out released a tweet and Instagram promoting the article on Nicholas as the most read article of 2020 and the one that they particularly wrote that oh, yeah. is just copy wrote just written by the editor yeah um this is a, that that experience is exactly what i mean by disregarding the work of of black writers black artists in general um the work is valuable because the work instigates action right uh nicholas rose's uh, complaints and all the work he's done since instigated the action of the National Ballet uh, hiring a, an equity, diversity, and inclusivity uh, director. So th that, that's a very, very important step. And I congratulate the National Ballet for making that step. But the fact is, you managed to make this action without actually addressing what instigated it. In the very same way, the dance current made that post and indicated that they are receptive of of um, the complaints and the grievances discussed in uh, the Blue Ribbon article and podcast without actually making reference to Blue Ribbon or interacting or mm. responding or acknowledging uh, that these complaints were made. So it's a pattern that you see where we see your work, we understand the value of it, but we will react to it without actually acknowledging you. So there, there, there's something that's endlessly triggering about that. And the reason I wanted to call all of this uh, a case study is because this is about Nicholas. This is about Emily's experience covering Nicholas, but it's also about something bigger than Blue Ribbon, bigger than any of us, which is whatever we refer to as white supremacy. It's such a, it's, it's a really distracting, huge tag that people think of it as something that's happening over there. Mm -hmm. Whereas the many opportunities that we get on a daily basis to fight it and to fight it within ourselves, because white supremacy is in, if you got a Western education, white supremacy is embedded in you. I don't care if you're black. I don't care if you're white. It's, it's just a fact of your life. So when you, you know, look at the storming of the Capitol and you point to that as white supremacy, you also have to look at the moments where you subconsciously and ho hopefully not consciously weigh the experiences of one of, of uh, a group as being higher or lower than another group. So good or bad, the quality and the value of it, you see it as not equal to each other. Uh, and that's what I feel this case study, quote unquote, is trying to point out that clearly the National Ballet values what Nicholas brings to the table. If they could press a button and have all of that value without actually having Nicholas, they would do it. And in fact, their disregard of him before and after he left the company is a de facto button that they pressed of having his work without actually having him. Yeah, I had the same impression. I mean, not to cast dispersions on anyone else's journalism, because sometimes you don't realize how big a story it is until it matures a little bit. But I found both of the articles left me thinking there's questions that aren't being asked and Nicholas himself is sort of being treated like an event like an explosion that's happened within the dance industry rather than a human being who has been navigating different forms of trauma and abuse since he was a child and he's not really being regarded as as a person who needs to be asked these questions and and treated as a human being with subjective experience so 
I had this this feeling like if if someone doesn't start talking to this young man, like the the artist, the individual that he is, who had an experience, then I'm not going to be able to sleep at night. Um, and so yeah, it, it was really it was really great to come to Michael and and find the same sort of sense of we need to thoroughly and because clearly if that was the biggest um, story that they had that year, it was the biggest story basically I think in the performing arts this year. I think it was the most um, important story possibly. I mean a lot of a lot of the conversations I had this year were how did you pivot and adapt to COVID sort of thing and and you know you ask that a lot and you get a lot of interesting answers but I think the most important story was one revealing that the implicit standards of whiteness are still baked deep into these classical forms and that classical forms have the most to do and so in writing this packing the implicit uh, expectations and assumptions of whiteness within myself was a big deal and I had to sort of do my own soul searching privately behind the scenes because it wasn't appropriate for it to be part of the investigation itself but um, yeah um, I think that the performing arts is approaching a reckoning Michael wrote a really wonderful article called um, a collective awakening in the arts where I tried to read it as if he was speaking personally to me. I thought if every white person reads this as if Michael is talking directly to them personally, individually, a lot of people will feel the need to unpack their relationship to the arts and their expectations of what they expect to see on stage. So I don't want to reiterate exactly what was said um, in Michael's podcast. Again, like go listen to it. It's a three-part um, case study. And it's really great. And Michael does a really wonderful job of being extremely eloquent and breaking it down into very like, it's just got like thesis written all over it, Michael. I just want to let you know, it's just stunning. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but so go listen to it. But if you could very briefly, the two of you just explain why the dance current took issue with it. And it, like, the, it seemed like you were going back and forth um, about getting it published. And then all of a sudden there was a halt in, a halt in play. Um, Emily, if you don't mind if I tackle this very quickly, but I, I hope you can add details that I miss. Um, uh, interesting you use the word halt there because that's one of the particularly striking things for me is how abruptly, uh, clumsily, the, the conversation was, was ended between uh, myself, Emily, and the dance current. If this had happened in June 2019, I would still be upset. But the fact that it happened just months or in the middle of the conversation about George Floyd and a reckoning with how much our society still relies on the stratification of, of uh, races, basically, um, to then be so abrupt in your disregard of a story that everyone else is talking about shows to me that you think you're above this conversation. So th that's, that's for me the starting point. But to answer your uh, question, the issue that they found with it uh, was more or less that uh, Emily shouldn't be writing it for some reason because she had shown personal uh, interest in Nicholas in terms of supporting him on social media in terms of showing up to his protests and showing support now there's something look if 
their argument there is journalistic ethics, that if we're going to write a, a, a so-called article on, on this issue, it needs to be impartial. But 2020, if we had to look back on it, was a year of picking between the lesser of evils. You know, I don't want to get political here, but there are a lot of people who don't like Joe Biden. But if you think that that choice was a difficult one, uh, you're, you're living on a different planet. So what you do is you suck it up and you pick the lesser of evils. In this case, if you had to pick the lesser of evils of bumping shoulders when it comes to journalistic ethics and publishing this nonetheless, or the, less, or the other evil, the more evil of the potential case where the National Ballet has a lot more work to do when it comes to equity, and when it comes to how they interact with their dancers, because this isn't just an issue, of, an issue of race. It's an issue of culture within that company from everything that Nicholas has said. The, the stratification of, of the ballet masters, the, the uh, leadership team and how they interact with dancers. It sounds like there's a lot more work that needs to be done there. And if you look at that and you see that there's a potential problem there, but you don't, you think that some subsection of some journalistic coach. She actually sent me a link to what I should be worried about. If you think that that's the the greater evil here, then you know I, I think your board of directors and but look, I, I don't want to mince words here. Uh, by you, I mean Grace Wells Smith. I'm not trying to call her out. I'm not trying to put her on the spot. But leadership means something. And it's not just artistic leadership or editorial leadership. It's also moral leadership. And I feel like she's great in the first two. But that last part there is where I think work needs to be done. And the last thing I'll say here is one part of the process, Emily told her that, hey, because of everything that's going on here, I showed the articles to M uh, Nicholas primarily and the other person of color that I interviewed. Because I just don't want this being another white lady writing the story of these black men and thinking that she has it right and her version is the correct one. So she wants to make sure that everything is kosher and their, their stories are being depicted accurately. Now, as far as I'm concerned, I didn't go to school for journalism, but you kind of know this instinctively that if I'm having a conversation with an, a writer, that is a confidential conversation. Now, what Grace revealed to me is that, oh, by the way, um, this is a problem that she showed it to Nicholas and, and, and company. But not only that, the National Ballet knows that now. So how it is that a conversation that should have been between you and Emily is now has a third party in the National Ballet that, you know, to talk about journalistic ethics, what happened there? How is it that, look, if you need to show them the article or you need to let the National Ballet know this is what's being written about that, I understand that. But why would you give them ammunition to come after this legally if they chose to? What's the whose side are you on here? What is your mission in the community where you see a situation like this and your job, you think that your job is to then let the mm -hmm. National Ballet that know that, hey, by the way, if you need to come after this for some reason, here's a piece of information that you can use. I'm sure she, uh, she and the dance current can reinterpret that in a different way, but that's exactly how mm -hmm. I saw it. Yeah, and I think where I'd want to expand on that is that uh, I had submitted screenshots. What I didn't go to school for journalism either. I went to theater school looking for a family and didn't realize that it was, you know, writing that I, I really wanted to do for a long time. So 
I didn't actually know that you weren't supposed to uh, pass the, but I, I run with more activist spaces than I do other writer spaces. I'd love to know more writers, but in activist spaces, white people don't speak for people of color. And I was very sensitive to the fact that I'm going to be susceptible to the same sort of white savior patterns that every other do-gooder white writer wants is, is prone to. So it was important to me to let um, these these two interviewees sort of look over the draft, but the grand total of feedback they gave back to me in the screenshots that I forwarded to the board of directors for review, and it was approved as as all clear. Was Nickel said, "Great, looks good, runs off." Um, he and uh, the other was from my anonymous source asking that I just uh, soften some of the quotes, make them less damning, make them kinder to the National Ballet, and um, paraphrase some things so that speaking patterns wouldn't come through. So really, the entirety of the feedback and influence that they actually had on the article, if you're looking from a practical perspective, yes, journalists are probably, they probably generally don't do this, um, but the actual impact of it on the article was in the National Ballet's favor. And in the other uh, situation, I was because um, in June, I was making posts on social media saying as a member of your audience, um, as someone who has supported you unquestioningly, I have to speak out and say, you need to commit to company-wide anti-oppression training. You need to provide mental health resources for this young man. Um, please listen to him sincerely and compassionately because I had always believed so deeply that the National Ballet was a superior company in many ways. I always sort of looked at other ballet companies that seemed really catty um, or unkind to their dancers. And I always had the impression of the National Ballet as being a very kind, warm, welcoming human place. That was always my impression. So I had a lot of faith. If they see that people who have been active participants in their community for 10 plus years, like I had, if they see that we care about this, they'll they'll have the human response that I've always believed that they they have. And, um, you know, I can see from their perspective that they might be afraid that I'd come at it with bias. However, I also can show them another 10 years of supporting them with the most ardent, agilent sort of admiration um, alliterative admiration. And I wanted to, to say, you know, just because I, I have to now hold you accountable for the first time in our, in our highly documented decade of me supporting you, that doesn't mean that I've lost love for the ballet. That doesn't mean I've lost love for the art form. And I considered writing this as an act of service to, to the art form that had done so much for me as an act of service to the dancers who had dedicated their lives to an art form that has truly given me so much beauty during a very difficult decade of my life. And so it, it became very important to me thinking, what is, what, what, if I have to choose here, if I'm going to be asked to choose, who am I actually going to support? And I went, my, my first duty has to be to, to dancers, not to institutions that are, may take a long time to change or institutions that may um, take a long time to absorb the information that they still have something to learn. And in my own personal experience of calling out abuse, it does take a long time for that information to absorb, but it is a beautiful act of service to tell someone, I love you, but what you're doing is unacceptable. I love you, but what you're doing is hurting people. In my own experience, having um, people say that to me when I was much younger, being able to say that to other people in my own life, I have seen the ways that those changes integrate into that person over time, into myself over time. 
And I can think of no greater act of love than to tell someone, I have to let you know, as Nicholas put it, I have to let you know when you're failing us. And I really, really believe that they would see that eventually as an act of love that it was. Um, totally. And I think that's one of the biggest differences and main takeaways from the difference between cancel culture and calling in, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I'm going to be honest, when I heard that it they didn't want to publish your article, Emily, the first time, my immediate thought was advertising revenue. Yeah, that was, <laughs> we were thinking that too. They're, they're a big ad client. And I know, I know, I don't want to say anything one way or another with Grace. We had an, an unusual but interesting interaction. But uh, I think in questioning my ethics and impartiality, it's a little bit one-sided to me that there's other questions of impartiality that aren't actually being addressed here. If you're receiving ad revenue from a, a huge corporation, you're not you're not able to be impartial. Just like if you're someone who has your own experience with um, calling out uh, tra traumatic abuse, you're not going to you're not able to be fully 100% completely impartial. But this there's a myth. We have this myth of objectivity and impartiality in the world of journalism. It's kind of like how the Western world has made music into a math. Um, rather than an, an art in many ways. And I think that the, the aim of objectivity and impartiality ends up sort of uh, creating false equivalencies. Like you see this happening in, you've seen this happening in the United States for four years now of what about the other side? You're not giving full coverage to this. Well, the difference is there's a power differential here. So you can't actually have an equal and opposite reaction for everything. There isn't an equal and opposite because we're addressing an actual power imbalance here. So trying to always create an equal and opposite equivalency for, well, you need to address this fully is, um, it, it actually suppresses people who are speaking out about something that they're not empowered and they don't have the platform and resources to address in the same way that a more resourced moneyed institution like the National Ballet does. Right. Um, totally. Sorry, just to add real quickly that it's worth pointing out how much people struggle doing what Emily and, and people like her have been able to do in this situation, which is to call out an institution you've always believed in. You know, if you had to think of what is the possible, what is the, how white can it get? It doesn't get much whiter than ballet in North America, or, or at least in this part of the world, right? So that is the, that's the, the epitome of, of whiteness. Now, it shouldn't be because if you're a, a ballet company in a village in Norway, I think it's maybe asking a tiny bit too much that uh, you're doing everything possible to make sure that your audience and your dancers are 50% uh, um, non-white. Right, because the, the community there is, 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 is the demographic is different. But when you're in downtown Toronto, where there's at least a fifty percent chance that the next person walking past you on the street or walking through the door is not white, you can't rely on this this Eurocentric identity as your driving force. So a lot of people who are lifelong devout fans of companies and organizations like the National Ballet, the Canadian Opera Company, the Toronto Symphony Orchestra, find it very hard to then divorce that identity from um, an overarching whiteness. 
and an overarching pristine image. So what I hope people take away from this is, look, you can still think of the National Ballet the way Emily thinks of the National Ballet as being, again, this, uh, the, the top tier organization in the art, in the art form. But you need to be able to see that organization with a person of color at the helm of it. You need to be able to see that organization where a principal dancer in a leading role is not your Guillaume Cote. I'm a huge fan of Guillaume, but that's besides the point. You need to be able to see, you need to be able you need to be able to be in love with an organization like this without connecting it with uh, a homogeneous uh, uh, demographic, right? Yeah, that kind of leads me into my next question. How can everyday audience members of the arts become more involved in like an EDI process? And how can they hold these companies accountable? Because in like realistically, the people that buy season tickets to the ballet are all ma the majority old white people, mm. right? So, and those, and they're gonna, the ballet is gonna listen to the people that spend the money. Mm -hmm. So like, how can the audience members take a stand mm -hmm. and hold companies and institutions accountable? Mm -hmm. um, Post-COVID, look for the smaller organizations in your community that's doing something different. Uh, look, I'll tell you this. If uh, you own, if you're old and white and you have a lot of money, the smaller companies that are doing something different, they're going to love you more than the National Ballet or the Canadian Opera Company does because yeah. they need your money a lot more. That's number one. Spread the, the wealth right? Like there are other people in your community that's doing something different, number one. Number two, this is exactly what I mean by the difference between corporate leadership and moral leadership. If you're only listening to, as you put it, the old white people with a lot of money who perhaps want to see young white people on stage, and because of that, you only put young white people on stage, where is the moral leadership there? You do have sway over our culture, right? Where the art goes, culture follows. So if we see things on stage that perhaps we don't get a chance to see in our daily lives, which as far as I can tell, is the entire point of the art uh, of going to live theater performance or going to a performing arts uh, experience is you see something on stage that for various reasons, you might not be able to interact with on your daily life. If companies like the National Ballet said, you know what, we're not gonna be impartial when it comes to this particular topic. We want to create the future. We want to create an audience that we don't have yet. Now they say that this is anything we say today, by the way, is not news to an organization like the, uh, the, uh, the National Ballet. What should mm -hmm. be news to everyone else is courage. Everybody has the information that they need to make a difference. Let's not kid ourselves. This isn't brain science. You know, read the books if you must, but if you grew up in the Western world, aside from white supremacy, what you also learned uh, uh, are the principles of fairness. You also learned uh, what is incorrectly known as Western values and liberal values. But you, we all know this. We all feel it at, at the level of, of, at an almost genetic level. What unfortunately takes over uh, is, is superstition and bigotry in the many var various ways. So what we need now is not more although look education is an incredibly important part but what we need more than anything is just the courage to say this is who i am i am filling in this seat at this event or i'm attending this performance where would i rather be is this particular company reflecting the kind of future that i, I would 
like to see and vice versa. If you're working for one of these organizations, where's your courage? Where's your spine? If you see something that's wrong, if you see someone like Nicholas being treated differently and you can't understand why, it takes courage, not some intellectualization of what's happening. No, it just takes courage to say, hey, can we check in on this? This doesn't feel good. Yeah. Actually, I'm on that note, I was going to ask you a question, but I'm going to ask you a different question right now. And I want you to tell me if, if this is like, I want you to let me know. And I feel like it's important for us as podcasters and people who are interviewing other people about their experiences to know. In the podcast, you bring up a specific instance that happened between Nicholas and um, Sipe and Lindsay Fisher. Mm -hmm. um, and what I mm -hmm. loved about your interview with Nicholas is you did a really great job about, you asked a question and you prefaced it with, I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Do you think it was a genuine mistake that Lindsay Fisher mistaked Nicholas with Sipe with Nicholas? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And my question to you about that is, do you think that that is a question that we could ask, um, like Corinne and I, or is that a question that do you think that because you're a black man, you could ask Nicholas? And again, I want you to tell me if that is like, uh, if that's a way, if that's like extremely uncool of me to ask you that, I want you to like, let us know about Sorry, that. Do you mind repeating that again? It kind of went over my head a tiny bit. Um, that's yeah. okay. So just the, just okay. the just the last part there, uh, in terms of how you yeah. phrase the question, uh, in, in the relationship between you asking that versus me asking yeah. that. Yeah, I want I want to know if that you think that like that is a question. Yeah. That if me or Corinne or if another white person was interviewing mm -hmm. Nicholas, if that's a question they could have asked, mm -hmm. if if they could they have played the devil's advocate in that instance right i understand what you mean um yeah I, I, i'll answer this with a question which isn't ideal but bear with me and that question is where do we eventually want to get to here like like this podcast the podcast that i've done this article what is the whole what's the destination of this in the last episode of uh of your podcast which you did with uh, cyrus uh marcus ware a great great person he went into an optimistic, slightly utopian end goal, which there's nothing wrong with of what are we trying to do here? We want to eventually, he, he even used the explanation of, uh, uh, or sorry, the example of someone who doesn't want to be an activist. I don't want to live my entire life being an activist. I just want to get to a place where mm -hmm. I can just go out and play tennis and just be like everybody else. So mm -hmm. in that same vein, I'll ask, what are we trying to get to here? We're trying to get to a place, as far as I'm concerned, where if you're upset at someone, neither of you should think it has anything to do with their race. Because I'll tell you this, human being, there are a lot of magnificent ways that human beings can be shitty to one another. We will never run out of ways of, of mm -hmm. being horrible to each other. We mm -hmm. don't need to bring race into it because that's something that's out of our control. Race is just an example of it, right? So we're, what I'm trying to say with all of this is the fact that you could potentially feel uncomfortable asking or, or playing the devil's advocate with Nicholas because, yeah. or with anyone else that's black mm -hmm. because you're white is evidence of the kind of trouble that we're all in. Where yeah. I can no longer speak my mind and ask a genuinely honest and well-intentioned question because I'm white or because I'm black, right? So in your yeah. case, you don't want to come across as mm. yeah. trying to defend yeah. uh, the, the ballet master in that case. But on the, on the other side of that, 
there are a lot of black people who don't want to play the devil's advocate because they feel to begin with that their presence always has an asterisk, always has a question mark. So our reticence to ask questions is coming from a sense of survival. For the most part at the moment, a white person's reticence to ask question, uh, questions uh, is coming from a place of momentary lack of, uh, sorry, momentary discomfort. Do you see the sort of lacuna, the divide between what's at stake in both cases, right? If you said the wrong thing in a, in a podcast when it comes to in an interview with Nicholas, it looks bad on you, but we'd all forget about it in a month, two months max. If someone who looks like me says the wrong thing in a meeting, I could lose my job, right? Because there's this sense of a precarious sense of invitation. So that's a really good question that you just asked. And it's a really tough thing, thing to answer because of course. in the moment, uh, what we, it, it, you're right, it does look a bit off if you decided to play devil's advocate with a, a black man who's making the argument that he's being treated on race. But what we're trying to get to, where we hopefully get to the place that uh, uh, Cyrus was talking about, okay. is a place where you can genuinely pursue that intellectual exercise of, look, Nicholas, I agree with you. I see this as a problem, but let me just ask you, is there a chance that someone just mis uh, called you a different name by accident? Which the reason I wanted to ask that question is we can't disregard that possibility that we have, that you're interacting with a white person who isn't racist and who isn't overtly uh, 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 being manipulative, that mm -hmm. like every other human being is just making an honest mistake. Mm -hmm. But we can't, it's at the moment and the current cultural atmosphere there, we have to, you, for example, the both of you have to find a way to do that, that simultaneously indicates to the person that you get the bigger picture here and that you're asking that question of, and the reason I wanted to play the devil's advocate is because yeah. there has to be a significant percentage of whoever's listening to this, that's asking that question in their head, like, uh, or, and I'm saying that can, that percentage is is dismissive, that they're not trying to understand the point, the larger picture here. And because I want to invite that percentage in, I'm asking their questions for them. So what mm -hmm. interviewers and people with a platform like yours has to figure out how to do is play the devil's advocate, because frankly, you need to, because you need to represent the people who don't get it and, and ask them and ask questions that makes them smarter so that they get they end up getting what they don't understand but mm -hmm. i guess your task is to ask those questions and en enter into these conversations in a way that lets the person who's the victim here know that look we're on the same team we're trying to get to the same place yeah. but there are just some folks who are not ready for that yet and we need to get them on board i'll leave it at that i think mm -hmm. no thank you so much for answering that i really appreciate it i know it's not your job to you know answer questions that I have about that. I, I just thought it was relevant in terms of speaking about even Emily speaking about um, writing the article about Nicholas, et cetera. And I mean, what you brought up, I was, I'm really impressed that you, you made that connection because I thought, oh, is she going to make that connection? And then you did. And um, I, I thought maybe you might pass over it because that sort of discomfort of, oh, I might fuck up. Oh, I might get something wrong. I might say the wrong thing. I might expose mm -hmm. a prejudice that I have. That was uh, a tension that I had to sort of personally navigate when talking to Nicholas in interviewing him. I refrained from playing devil's advocate just because I think that um, 
oftentimes white people have the privilege of participating in an intellectual theoretical debate about something that will never affect our lives, that will never be an experience that we have. So it's very easy for us to, to sort of play with something that will not stain us. It's like we're, we're dipping our hands in water rather than dipping it in, in dye. It won't, it won't go away with us. Um, but I, I'm really, I really admire that, um, that you touched down into, to, into the ambiguity of a situation like that. And in writing about the article, I had to recognize that it's the ambiguity itself that has the most impact on people of color is actually my my anonymous interviewee who brought that up and went being put in situations where we're forced to question how much faith we should put in the good intentions of leadership how much faith how how do we if we because sometimes when you're in contact with a person we've forgotten this being in quarantine but when you're in the same energetic space as someone else sometimes you can perceive if something they've done or something they've said is unconscious or semi-conscious Sometimes you can pick that up, but being left to question your own instincts, and your own intuition. Um, I know what that's like just, just as, as a person in the world questioning, it, was that passive aggressive? Was that meant to minimize me? Was that meant to make me feel lesser than? Um, I think people of color put in those situations so, so often that um, it just didn't, it never felt appropriate for me to, to ask Nicholas that question because I thought it's besides the point. The point is that mm -hmm. being left to question is just as damaging, whether it was intentional or not. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. oh. Corinne, did you have something to say? Um, no, I was just, just thinking about that topic. That's, mm -hmm. it's, it's um, how do I, mm, mm, mm. Well, look, that's the ideal. <laughs> How do I want to? <laughs> Corin, I, I just want to jump in. See that response and reaction you just gave? Uh, it might not seem like a lot, but that's exactly what I hope a lot more people do. Because if you see issues like this and you're like, oh, I got it. I'll just post a black square on a Tuesday. Done. You're not helping anyone. But when you see something that's complex and ambiguous and that mm -hmm. causes you to take pause, that's where real action starts because we're humans are just too complex to say that this is the solution that's going to fix everything. It requires you to be intellectually dexterous, to be sometimes ambiguous in your response and to be sometimes uncertain, but sincere in your response. So if you don't feel as if you have an answer in the, in, in the context of this podcast, I know that doesn't make for a tremendously interesting podcast, but that's also progress because it shows that you're actually thinking and contemplating about these issues. Thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting because I recently, like recently had a discussion. Um, actually, I don't know how much I want to talk about that actually, because I don't have any form thoughts about it. And it's, just repeating what all of you have already said so <laughs> i think it's really interesting that um moments of discomfort like that of not having an immediate response of having something land on you that is new that you're going to take time to process that is what i think all white people who claim to care about the arts who claim to care about being progressive i think we all need to get more we need to get hungrier for discomfort and we need to get more comfortable being uncomfortable because I, I, I think there are neurological software updates that have to happen in order to break down certain empathy barriers. I mean, this is just my 
theory after you know going through 2020 um, is I think that that there are certain conditioned empathy barriers that are salient features of whiteness. And Michael made a really wonderful distinction. I think in the third episode, the that white people are not the antagonist, whiteness is the antagonist. And that um, distancing yourself and recognizing the salient features of whiteness, avoiding uh, discomfort, being able to say, I'm, I'm not going to make myself uncomfortable. I've done enough, I've posted a black square, square, I can make myself, I can return to a state of racial comfort because that is my right, I always have that, that path. But there was, for me in June, I mean, for the, the level of pain that I was going through, I can't even imagine what it's, it was like for people of color, but I experienced some kind of neurological software update that left me pretty much useless for most of June. I was just crying because I was fully letting things in for the first time. And I, I think I recognize that there are empathy barriers. White people are sort of conditioned to say, you don't have to look at this. You have plenty of horror in your own life. You don't need to look too closely at this. You don't need to let it in fully. I let it in fully in June and it it broke my brain. My brain just was not working for, for several weeks. And um, that was really good. That was probably the most uncomfortable thing that has ever happened because a neurological software update, an empathy software update is something that is going to be extremely painful, is going to be the most uncomfortable thing that's ever happened. And it's, it's fully, it's also recognizing that to fully recognize the weight of horror that white supremacy has sort of, I know Michael says it's a very generalized term, but to really look at the way that it is baked in, that it is mold that infects every single aspect of our society that permeates so many interactions is really to take on a certain amount of weight that people of color have to hold all the time. Like I, I just used this, um, metaphor the other day, there's this brick in my hand now. There's always this brick in my hand now and it's heavy because I have more anger in me now that I have fully let in and started really receiving the details of something that I was always going, I have all this horror in my own life. I, 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 there was some kind of implicit unconscious barrier, but now there's this weight in my hand. And I think this brick doesn't have to just to be, to smash the people that make me so angry. This, if everyone picks up their brick, we build something together. If everyone sort of takes their part of the weight, that takes some of the weight off of people of color. So I think white people just need to get more comfortable being uncomfortable and taking a share of that weight. And it, in response to your question before of like, what can people do post COVID to be supporting this? I think taking recognizing that you're always gonna be a little bit angrier, that you're always going to be a little bit more tired, um, that you might always, need to be constantly pushing yourself and learning and that's just going to be a part of your life moving forward that that takes that's a process because we always have the option to well in in my case i don't have the option of going back to it just because i i would never feel comfortable again pretending like i didn't know something i would never mm -hmm. yeah but um yeah don't get don't don't be afraid of the discomfort don't be afraid of not having a response right away i think that's the bow I'm putting on the end of that. Thank you. Michael, in the interview with Nicholas, I think it's in part two, you bring up such an interesting point that I could actually hear you speak more about in further like case studies or, or episodes that you might want to do. And you talk about pedigree 
if you could explain how this is privilege in the arts, for example, I think you compared it to like a last name. Yes, absolutely. Uh, but just before I do, I really, yeah. really appreciate what Emily just said about being getting used to discomfort because that is an option that's available for the majority of people in our society but for the uh, racialized people and the minority population in our society that is not an option you're born with it you live with it you learn to go to work with it you learn to sleep with it um so if we and i love absolutely love that um use of the the concept of i have a brick in my hand now i can either throw it or i can build something with it if you're the only person that's carrying a brick uh, you'd be stupid to not throw it. But if you see everybody else doing the same and carrying the weight and sharing the responsibility, you would be stupid to throw it. Um, so that, that's, you know, if, if, if you do listen to five minutes, uh, well, listen to everything. But if you listen to five minutes from this conversation, I would take uh, the five minutes that uh, uh, Emily just spoke. Uh, that's, a, that's an incredibly, incredibly important point. So your um, question, though, uh, uh, Rain, um, uh, credit actually goes a bit to... Um, a, a black pianist that I uh, interviewed for the Blue Ribbon podcast, sorry, no, the remote podcast uh, uh, in September of last year. His name is Stuart Goodyear. Um, and he sort of mentioned it in passing, the amount that he was speaking about cl the classical community in Toronto, in, in, in Canada at large, the amount to which, or the degree to which they rely on this concept, he used the word pedigree. And I kind of just put it in the back of my mind and it's sort of just been eating away and eating away. The fact that the classical arts, which includes ballet and as an offshoot includes contemporary dance because you're, you're sort of the, 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 the prodigal son that was kicked out. When I think of the, 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 the progression of, of classical arts, contemporary dance is in that uh, family, at least in this part of the world, feel free to disagree with me. But generally the classical arts relied uh, explicitly on pedigree. When you hear a name like Schumann, Beethoven, or however you're supposed to say that guy's name, uh, I know I just pissed off half of the listeners here, but when you, these names have meaning in two ways. One, it has meaning in terms of their body of work, which is incredibly impressive and incredibly inspiring, but it also has meaning um, in terms of the pedigree, the etymology, of whiteness. Now, what another person that I interviewed is uh, Daniel Bartholomew Poyser of the Toronto Symphony Orchestra. And one of the points that he brought up in our conversation was, funny enough, it's actually, he, he's, a, he's a black conductor. Um, uh, uh, he's like, funny enough, it's people who look like me, uh, black people in classical music that are the best defenders of defenders of Bach and Beethoven and, and, and these white people, because for us, it's not about, we don't have access to this pedigree. So we have to rely entirely on that first meaning, which is the body of work. So if you're actually trying to sell classical music to the, to the next generation, it's people who don't have access to pedigree that are your best ambassadors. And last, lastly, sort of using, going back to my example of, you know, that Norwegian village, you should always ask people to be as diverse as possible, but be reasonable. If you came, I was born in a, in a small village in Nigeria. If you came to my town and said, this place needs to be more diverse, you'd be laughed out uh, uh, of the meeting, right? We're all black and that's not, that's not going to change anytime soon, although you never know these days. But the point is, when you live in a place that's as diverse as Toronto, diversity is not an option for you. It is necessity. If you want to survive, if you want your 
business uh, a model to thrive, diversity is a necessity, both a corporate necessity and a moral necessity. Companies like the National Ballet, at least explicitly, have embraced the corporate necessity of diversity. And they, uh, that's what the social media performing uh, uh, performance, performing allyship, or however you say that word. That's what that's all about. But have you embraced the moral necessity of diversity so that when you look at someone like Nicholas, for me, he is everything that I think of when I think of a classical artist, a dancer. He's a great communicator, both with his body and with his body and his voice. And he's a cellist. So if you had to create an avatar of what it means to be a, a, a classical artist, I see that in Nicholas. But what a lot of people in the performing arts don't see is that pedigree, right? And, and you see it in his body. Yes, he's black. He obviously, if, if, a, if a person like that has the last name Schumann, you know that some suspect things went down a uh, 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 100, 200 years ago, right? So are, we have arrived at a place now in the performing arts across the board where we have to stop expecting people who do the job to look and sound a certain way. I've experienced it as a writer in the performing arts, uh, where because I don't exude the pedigree that I've just described, there is a reticence to embrace my work. Now, I take that as I just need to, uh, until 2020, I took that as I just need to write better and do a better job. What 2020 was also reckoning, and I, I, this is to so the Black and BIPOC listeners, uh, um, uh, listening to this, 2020 was also an opportunity for us to grow and cut the shit. 2020 told us that, look, your hard work, very important, and you have to keep pushing that ceiling. But you also have to understand that the bottom is falling out from beneath you, that it's not just about hard work. It's about the non-merit-based ways that your work is engaged with. We have to have that conversation with ourselves that, yes, hard work is incredibly important. And if someone rejects you, it's not just because you're Black, but it kind of has a little to do with it. So make sure that you address that and make sure that you're dealing with people who know that you're addressing that. Um, I, I could go on and on about pedigree and I, I'd like to keep this short, but it's something that I hope someone writes a book about. It's something that I hope someone writes their thesis about, which is we're at a unique place now where you have something that at the end of the day is a fundamentally uh, European art form, be it uh, uh, ballet, be it classical music uh, or opera. Like, let's not, there's no way, the other way to say that. But we're at a place now, can this art form survive without it being represented by Europeans and white people? If the answer is no, then what are we doing here? I think my first, one of my first memories of Michael was actually him not even talking to me. You were talking to someone else, Michael. I don't know if you remember this, but you were reading a review while we were both uh, on an usher shift. You were reading a review where a reviewer said something about, the, the singer's pedigree is impeccable. And you were sort of, you had the magazine, you were talking to someone else going, what do they mean by pedigree? What, isn't that a word that is used in like dog yes. dogs? Exactly, yeah. Exactly. yeah. And, I, and I was walking away going, you know, he keeps trying to be my friend and, and I, I have weird, mm, I can't accept that right now. Um, but I was going, here's a point, here's a point. I want to talk to him more about that because pedigree is a word that felt a little uh, strange to me in that context. And it is something the, that I, yeah, sorry, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, Emily. Now mm -hmm. the powers that be would never use the word pedigree, but what we have to look out for is how they insinuate pedigree, right? When people write reviews about an artist, if you have to bring up that 
so-and-so's grandmother, so-and-so's, like creating this complete picture. If you have a lineage that has not been interrupted by the others, that's not something to be proud of because diversity, as we're all learning with COVID and the immune system right now, diversity is what makes you human. If your body, like you're taking the vaccine because you're trying to introduce something new to your immune system. So if your lineage lacks diversity, that's not something to be proud of, not something to be ashamed of either. I'll say that. But a lot of people interact with a lack of diversity in lineage and in pedigree as a good thing. That is very suspect because that means that you think that purity in lineage. I can't stand it when people use the word purebred and, uh, about their dogs. Like it's no other non Shih Tzu has fucked my dog. I'll tell you that. <laughs> But it's like, there's something weird about that because nature is not designed like that. Nature is messy. Nature wants one to, to copulate with the other and, and create something new. So when I read, as you were saying, Emily, when I read a, a review and the first thing that's mentioned is that her family has been building pianos in Germany and Munich for six centuries. I'm like, that's all they've done for six centuries. Nothing else. You've tried nothing else in your lineage. That is, that should be a, re I hope your, ta your takeaway on this question is whenever someone relies on pedigree as a benefit that is a red flag mm -hmm. and something i thought about in interviewing nicholas how i agree he is the perfect classical artist you couldn't ask for anything more the first thing that i asked him i said before we you know i have to ask you to rehash something that's painful for you could you please i just wanted to talk to you as an artist for such a long time because i had seen him choreographing for elena lobzanova who was like my big uh, I, she's just she's so special and to see him working with her and to realize he was also a classical musician the first question i asked him was what is it like being a trained cellist also choreographing and also a dancer like you have these three levels of embodying music and understanding it happening when you're creating and it it sort of shocked me that the national ballet was slept on that i thought don't you see you could put him in, in a in a mixed program and have him playing cello and then he gets up and he starts dancing and i went that what uh, that you are sitting on a gold mine here yeah but it's and not a white gold not, mine though. are they not looking at him like that are they looking at him as a bahamian american um dancer who doesn't have the pedigree to merit a a, a program that showcases what a gem he actually is like i don't know how many other dancers in their company can also play music and also choreograph um, but I really thought you're you're not valuing this human being for the the incredible, unusual, unique artist. You really, really uh, you found someone quite special who could be offering a huge amount of energy to your company. And I I think questions of pedigree come up. The implicit expectation of pedigree of so and so was born to be in ballet. There there are ballet lineages, there are families that have been in the arts for a long time and grand expectations for, but then when you have someone who doesn't come from that particular lineage, uh, who is excelling, why why isn't there excitement about that? Why isn't there, and we, we keep sort of skirting around the issue of the future of ballet, and that is something that I, I am surprised and disappointed by the reluctance and the reticence about the opportunity being presented to the art form right now. Mm -hmm. Like we, we all have seen, well, I don't know, Michael and I have seen Nijinsky and I don't know if either of you, but Nijinsky was instrumental in transforming what ballet looked like for the coming century. And anyone pre-Nijinsky who looks at what ballet is today would go, ah, oh, what is that? 
and anyone from our era looking back at what ballet looked like 100 years ago would go, ah, what is that? And but so these things do evolve and they reflect our times. And the fact that Toronto, it, we, we claim to pride ourselves on being the most diverse city, but when that's not reflected on an institution that is touched down, landed in this glass monolith in the middle of what is supposed to be the most diverse city and we're not reflecting that, or at least not really reflecting that until a young man speaks out about it. Now they're sort of scrambling to reflect that. I think you really have to ask questions about what is your actual connection to art here? Mm -hmm. What is your actual relationship to performance art if you're not recognizing um, the capacity and capabilities of this young man? Like what, what are you really looking for in an artist or your experience of art? Yeah, that actually makes me really think about what you said earlier, Michael, and this idea of being courageous in art. If the National Ballet really cared about pushing the art form in a way that was sustainable or in a way that would reach different people, they would be more courageous and they're not. Yeah. And also just the courage to, to challenge whiteness. Again, that's not white people. It's important to make that distinction. Yeah. Like a lot of us have an intrinsic sense of what is wrong here or what is right here. We all have it, but it takes courage to actually be, to actually say it and then to do it. Right. Because there, it's, if, White supremacy does exist the way that we describe it. That must mean that it's like an atmosphere that we're all breathing in. So to put on a gas mask when everyone else is just walking around, imagine walking around in 2019 with a mask on while everyone else was just, you know, breathing in COVID, <laughs> right? That's so it takes courage to say, okay, the buck stops here. Mm -hmm. And it's been disappointing to see that leadership at the National Ballet struggles continuously with that courage because what's your excuse you know if I've got someone who's working nine to five trying to take care of a single parent trying to take care of three kids their excuse could just be look my entire kids lives are dependent on me being able to maintain this income so if I say anything wrong and blah 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 I still believe that you know courage is above that but when you're at the top of uh artistic society yes. You're financially stable. You're socially, your your social capital is through the roof. Mm -hmm. Why would you be reticent about being courageous when it comes to this particular issue? I think they made it a little bit easy for themselves in in focusing on on things that they found unpalatable about Nicholas as a person. I think it they made it a little bit easy for themselves to think that they couldn't work with him. Or so I, I think they. Um, something sort of came out when in the interview that Michael had with Nicholas, I, I'd known that someone had spoken to Nicholas about emotional regulation. I didn't know that it was it was Karen Kane telling him in the meeting that he needed to be more emotionally regulated. I can't speak for her. I don't know what tone she said that with or with what good intentions she may have said that with. But I, I did just want to say that emotional regulation is something that uh, it's a term used by clinical practitioners to describe a practice that people with PTSD and CPTSD return to every day for years to cultivate. So if you wanna see more emotional regulation from dancers who are calling you out for abuses within the company, you need to be providing mental health resources to those dancers, which was something that Nicholas brought up in that meeting. Mm -hmm. um, I think that when there was a choice to be courageous and to be compassionate, because compassion is courageous, you have to disarm yourself. You have to really untense your stomach let someone else's truth in and feel compassion for them and have the courage to believe them because it's a scary thing to believe that you have been capable of creating a miserable experience for someone else 
And so I, I understand why they might have gone, well, he seems dramatic and untrustworthy. Mm -hmm. and he's very emotional. He's not emotionally regulated. So there, it creates this little pathway for them to go. There is a courageous path, a, a difficult path, a moral leadership path of really listening and recognizing that this canary in the coal mine is is die is making is putting himself at risk to tell us about something poisonous in our atmosphere. And you talked about wearing a mask to keep out COVID. There is something poisonous in the atmosphere that is only that is only visibly harming people of color who are being treated like intruders to a space of whiteness. Um, so I think that there was a bit of a crossroads there that they may have chosen to focus on features of Nicholas that make him such a, a vibrant, powerful uh, orator and speaker and personality in the arts. I think that they may have focused on those things as reasons why not to take him seriously. And I really hope that as this sinks in, I hope they're listening to this. I hope if that was the case, that they're able to forgive themselves for that initial defensiveness and mm -hmm. perhaps choosing not to be similarly vulnerable with him in accepting that there may be something that they don't know about and that they can't see. And speaking a little bit, like you touched on it briefly there, kind of like the fish kind of rots from the head, right? And in like, especially like an organization or a power structure like the National Ballet has, Karen Kane is up for retirement right away. Mm -hmm. Do we think that everything that happened in 2020 is going to have them reevaluate, rethink, and renegotiate a, a going a different way for like a head of the an artistic director for that company? What just opinions, just like out of curiosity? Um, the fish kind of rots rots from the head. <laughs> I've not heard that one uh, before. I like that. Uh, that's part of the point of this. That there's a change of leadership, not only at the National Ballet. The Toronto Symphony Orchestra also just got a new music director. The Canadian Opera Company also just got a new leader. So there is an opportunity right now in Toronto, at least, to, uh, well, the page is being flipped, whether we like it or not, with these new people that are coming in. Can this be an opportunity to realign your priorities as an organization? And that has to do partially with your moral priorities. The, the new... Uh, uh, artistic director of the Canadian Opera Company. I don't know much about him, Perrin Leach, but it seems as his uh, his uh, um, talent is more so in the administrative slash financial side of things. So I'm a tiny bit worried about, does he understand the Toronto atmosphere? And does he understand the community that we're trying to build here? And does he understand the importance of this particular conversation when it comes to equity? Because it's not just Black people. It's all the other marginalized voices that perhaps don't get to see the stage as often and the Canadian voices that don't get to see the stage as often. Mm -hmm. Same is true for the National Ballet. As you guys are going out there to look for a new artistic director or perhaps going within the company to look for an artistic director, Guillaume Cote is a very talented person. He's a very talented thinker, not just a, a, a talented dancer. So there's no reason why he shouldn't take that job. But if you're looking to maintain the status quo within the company, then you're missing a tremendous opportunity when it comes to rebranding the, the image of the National Ballet to reflect all of these things that I've just listed. Someone like Guillaume comes in, and I'm just, this is just speculation. I don't have any inside information, but if someone like Guillaume comes in and their goal is to retain the, the status quo when it comes to culture, we're in a lot of trouble, as in the dance community in uh, 
uh, uh, in Canada. But if he comes in, for example, and says, I've seen good things in this company, which is why I want to stay and take the lead, but I've also seen not so good things. And I want to tackle those things. If that's your mentality coming into building, that is a really, really, really good thing. Uh, but I guess uh, uh, we're going to we're going to be finding that out soon. The main thing is that th this isn't just another year. 2021, you're seeing a huge uh, uh, change at the top, at the rotting fish's head, as you put it. So you know, you either put someone at that head who understands the, the, the grievances of 2020 and can tackle that and isn't just a money person or just an admin person or isn't just going to ferry in another boatload of European dancers and writers and, and musicians and leaves Canadi the Canadian industry to rot. This is a moment to actually, uh, uh, you, everyone's yelling and, and crying for how like we need something to change. 2021, here you go. This is your blank slate. Do something with it. Of course. Um, is being an artist fucking killing you? This question made me so emotional. <laughs> when you said, oh, just have like a funny little anecdote. I did deep soul searching of And so I thought I have a couple little stories of how um, I was seeking out experiences because artists need to take in, we need to have complex sensory encounters with the physical world. We need to rub our cheeks against trees and, and feel things and take in music. And there were times that I put my own life in danger in order to get an experience, like walking out on ice or climbing a, a waterfall in flip-flops. But the more I thought about this question, I thought, what is actually fucking killing? What was fucking killing me in in the early stages of trying to be an artist? And I think it was a culture uh, that, uh, that brainwashed me into saying yes all the time, shaming me into saying yes and, and being so vulnerable all the time. And especially I, as a woman, I was in acting school, saying yes all the time puts you in a very vulnerable position, especially as a young person who doesn't understand how compromising your boundaries or going numb is going to assert itself over time. I think what was killing me and what I would really want to impart to other artists is you can also say no, that guarding your spiritual artistic creative process, you have to also be able to say no. You can't just mm -hmm. feel pressured to be this open person who says yes and takes risks all the time because it art is not actually the safe space that, that we, we wish it would be. And then even navigating a creative space where you wish you could completely let go and immerse in something, there are, the, having the boundaries around it are actually are going to protect you long-term in terms of having craft, um, in terms of developing craft. It's what's gonna give your career and your soul longevity and trying to be an artist is also being able to know when to say no as well. Yeah. Yes. What about yourself, Michael? Is being an artist fucking killing you? <laughs> it is absolutely fucking killing me, but um, strength in numbers. It looks like it's killing every other fucking artist out there. Um, for me personally, it's a question of value. What, what's killing me at the moment is seeing that the work I put out and the work that other artists of color uh, put out is valued, but the artists themselves, the writers, the dancers are not themselves valued. So, you know, that's, that's, and I believe I have a great, great belief in healing. So this is not uh, a death sentence. I believe that this is something that the industry is alighting to and is uh, on its way to changing. Beautiful. Thank you two so much for, for being here. And for those that are listening, again, please go and listen to Michael's 
full three episodes about everything that happened and you can learn uh, a little bit more. Mm -hmm. If people want to see both of your work or be more engaged with you, where can they find you? If that's something you want to share. Emily, you go first. Uh, I was waiting for you to go first. Sure. Um, I'm still in the process of updating my website, but emilytrace.com has like uh, most of the publications that I've done thus far. A little bit of creative work, but I'm I'm very hesitant about sharing creative work right now. I'm, I'm still getting used to that. So they can check that out there. But I would also urge anyone, uh, I would urge more people to uh, check out Blue Ribbon regularly like continue to support it regularly share it with your parents like we need to get moms involved because moms that share things on facebook and we and uh yeah i would say support blue ribbon and and smart magazine as much as possible because i am unbelievably like so honored to be featured on the on the on the website that michael designed uh, next to other artists that he has connected with they're truly world-class publications and just not getting the attention that uh, people deserve to see it. It's not just that they deserve to see it, 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 it Toronto deserves Blue Ribbon. <laughs> Thank you. I, I can't do much better than that, Emily. Thank you. And she's right. I am struggling with moms at the moment. That's the one demographic. So moms, please check out Blue Ribbon on Instagram, <laughs> blue underscore ribbon, and that's spelled R-I-B-A-N-D. Thank you. Mom, that's your call. Don't worry, my mom yeah. will follow you. <laughs> Dad's too, but who cares? Perfect. <laughs> Let's be honest. Great. Thank you so much for listening. If you liked what you heard, if you had any questions, feel free to contact us on Facebook, Instagram, basically any place that you can get podcasts, you can listen to us. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time. <laughs>